It's my privilege this evening to introduce to you uh, Dr. De Gelder. He's a retired minister from Burlington Flamborough. Uh, and he is going to speak to us. The title of his speech, it is not good for the man to be alone. He's going to deal, help us deal with the situation where we have uh, people in our churches who deal with same-sex desires and how we can be of support and encouragement to them in the struggles that they face. Without any further ado, I'd like to hand the floor over to him. Thank you very much for your introduction, uh, Reverend Poppy, and um, welcome and good to see you all here uh, tonight. Uh, can you understand me? Can you hear me well? Good? Yeah? Good. Um, yeah, it is an, uh, it's a topic um, that is uh, sensitive. Uh, we hear a lot about it in the, in the media, in the, uh, the secular media. Um, this, uh, there's much information about that, but not all the information is good and helpful. Uh, it's also in the news, um, and, uh, and so we, we, we hear about it and we read about it, and what do we do? Um, a few years ago, uh, a brother in the Lord, who was in his late 20s, wrote the following, and I quote, At this stage in my life, the men of my own age in the circle of my friends and family are all getting married. I love that. I enjoy celebrating those occasions with them. But there's one moment on those days that I would rather skip. That is when we read in a marriage form, the Lord God says it is not good that the man should be alone. These words touch me deeply because I have homosexual feelings. Does anybody in the church realize how incredibly hard that is? The same God who says that it is not good for the man to be alone, the same God designed his pattern for marriage in such a way that he leaves no room for me to have a partner in my life. End of quote. Think of this when your brother or sister in the church, often young, but not always, most of the time after a time of confusion and fear and struggle and emotional upheaval, he comes out of the closet, as they call it. He's gay and he sits beside you in the pew. Then what? Let me begin by sharing a few of my experiences that I had when I was in active ministry, retired for the last six years, but in active ministry, our last congregation. And uh, those things came out in, let's say, last, oh, last five, six years before I retired. Some sort of, all of a sudden it came up. Number one. Four examples. Number one tells his parents and siblings a few years after high school that he is gay. His mother says right away, don't worry, we can fix that. The siblings react all differently. 
Now, he was not unwilling to talk with me when I approached him, but he was not very eager either. And shortly after our conversation started, he is backing out. He leaves the church. He moves to Toronto, where he joins what you call a gay-friendly church. He just did not want to spend a lot of time talking about God's will for his life. Number two is a brother who tells me that after intense Bible study, he has found that the Bible does not forbid, no, no, that the Bible does forbid sexual promiscuity, also for homosexuals, but that the Bible does not say anything about monogamous, loving, committed, faithful, same-sex relationship. That is fine. That is biblical in his view. He really is on an aggressive mission. He openly challenges his family, his friends, his church community with that view. And the good part of that is he's always willing to talk about it. And so I had some very extensive communications with him, at personal meetings, by email, and other ways. Number three is a lonely struggler. He's frustrated. He's confused. And he's angry. Angry with God. Eventually he talks to his parents, siblings, a few friends... But the friends talk to other friends, and so more and more his situation becomes public. He wants to serve God, but he's not sure how to do that, and how to deal with this scary mix of emotions. He's hard to reach. He avoids the confrontation. And in this way, he isolates himself more and more. And the church gets the blame for the trouble he finds himself in. Number four struggles for a while on his own. Then he talks to his parents, a few friends, and he talks to me, his pastor. And he says, I am gay, I have homosexual feelings that will probably never change. I will have to live with that and struggle with that, most likely for the rest of my life. That will be difficult, but I can do so and hope to be able to do so in faith because I believe that God does not want me to have a homosexual relationship. My sexual orientation is not the most important part of who I am. I need to learn that. But I belong to Jesus Christ. I want to serve God and do his will. And I will need the church community to help me with that. So what are we talking about? My presentation is divided in two parts. Two parts. First, I want to talk a bit about what is homosexuality, a definition, the biblical view, the controversies that come up in the discussion, etc. And... Um, in the second part, I want to reflect on, on our attitude, the attitude of the church. I want to see how the gospel of Jesus should make the church a safe and a good place for the gay and lesbian believer who wants to follow Jesus Christ in his or her life. Even if that church says no to homosexual relations. To begin with, what is homosexuality? Um, 
Throughout literature, you will find a number of different definitions to describe it. Let me give you the one from the late Alan Medinger. Or Medinger, I don't know how to pronounce that name. Um, this, this gentleman is a former director of Exodus International. You may have heard about that. Exodus International used to be a Christian organization with a mission to help people with homosexual desires. And they would do that by promoting the cure of what they call reparative therapy. But in 2013, the board of directors of, of, of Exodus International, was a big organization worldwide, the board of directors announced the dissolution of the organization. The president at that time rejected the organization's mission. He acknowledged that in most cases, reparative therapy did not work, did not lead to change. And he apologized for the pain and the hurt that was caused by these programs and theories. And he himself returned to a homosexual lifestyle. In the meantime, Medinger's definition is still useful, although it's incomplete. This is as follows. Homosexuality is the condition wherein a person's primary or exclusive sexual and or romantic attractions are to people of the same sex rather than to people of the opposite sex. It's, it's pretty clear, and it's a succinct definition. It sounds simple, it sounds straightforward, but in practice, it's a bit more complicated. The definition talks about condition. Yeah? It talks about a person's primary, uh, is the condition, and it talks about attractions, romantic exclusive attractions. That's where the problems come in. In the literature and in the discussions, there's a lot of confusion when it comes to terminology. That's not only with this topic, other topics too. You always have to sort of define what you're actually talking about. Terminology. Besides homosexual behavior, we also hear about sexual, homosexual lifestyle. We hear about homosexual orientation, homosexual feelings, homosexual attractions, homosexual desires. What's the difference? Or is it all the same? And are some of these things, if it's not all the same, are some of these things more sinful than others? Edward Welch, Edward T. Welch, is director of the School of Biblical Counseling at CCEF in Glenside, Pennsylvania. He's also a lecturer at Westminster Theological Seminary in, uh, in Philadelphia. He wrote about that in Blame It on the Brain. I have the book, I have a few other literature here, and we'll look at that a little bit later. But in Blame It on the Brain, he has a, he has a chapter on homosexuality. Um, it was written in 1998. The book was 20 years old. It's still on the market, and it has some good... Uh, information in there on different topics. He also wrote an, a more recent brochure, um, a few years later, not even that many, about homosexuality. Now, Welsh does not believe in something like homosexual orientation. And the rest of the things that we mentioned, yeah, behavior, lifestyle, feelings, attractions, desires, the rest, it all lumps together as homosexual desires. And homosexual desires are just as sinful as homosexual behavior. That's Welsh's 
approach. And I think that Welsh is oversimplifying what's actually happening. Welsh refers to Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verse 28. Matthew 5, verse 28. Then it says, and it's in the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, the lustful desire is just as sinful as the action of adultery. Now, in Matthew 5, verse 28, it's about, it's about heterosexual, but it doesn't make a difference. It's also true for homosexuals. Lustful desire is just as sinful as the action. And that's correct. You can't argue with that. But think of this. The lustful desire of a married man, married between brackets, can also be a, a, a single man, but the lustful desire of a man for another woman is sin. Yeah? That's what Jesus says. However, the fact that this man is attracted to women, that as such is not a sin. That's how he is. And, 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 and in this case, that's perfectly fine because it is in line with God's plan. Genesis 2, verse 24. A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, to a woman. So in Matthew 5, Jesus addresses the lustful desire, but he does not address the fact that this man is, that a man is attracted to women. So I think it's helpful to make the more careful distinction between orientation or attraction, then desire, and then behavior or lifestyle. I do believe that having a same-sex attraction as such is not a sin. It is the result of sin. I think it's a valuable distinction. We're all born in sin. And by sin, the good creation of God has been damaged and broken in many different ways. And many of us, actually I think all of us, in one way or another, experience that. The brokenness that is the result of sin. In homosexuals, the good attraction that God created it has been distorted and is now directed to the wrong things. In this case, people of the same sex. Temptations are not sin either. Right? We all face temptations. But we are to resist temptations. Because giving in to temptation leads to sin. Think of James in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Giving in to temptations leads to sin, first in the form of lustful desires, and then resulting in sinful behavior. And without repentance, and without turning to Jesus Christ for forgiveness, the consequences will be terrible. It will be death, said James. The discussion in, in, on these distinctions is connected with another discussion that takes place. It's a widely discussed topic. That's the question of what causes homosexuality. Does it have a biological cause? Is it in the brain? Is it in the genes? 
Or does it come from environmental circumstances? Is it psychological damage as the result of, uh, of experiences in somebody's youth? The absent father, the overbearing mother? You get lots of different theories about that. Now, the contemporary gay community claims that homosexuality is simple, a sexual variation. Just as natural as heterosexual. It's like the difference between blue eyes and brown eyes. Blonde hair and black hair. What's the difference? And they need to put it this way because that's the only way in which homosexuals can claim gay rights as human rights. There's no difference in human rights between people with, with, with blue eyes and brown eyes. Of course not. So they say that gay rights are just simple human rights. Now, Edward Welch, that I mentioned before, he claims that there's not a shred of evidence of any genetic or biological cause of homosexuality. In his view, a homosexual orientation does not exist. It's a learned mindset, he said, and learned behavior can be unlearned. It can be difficult, it can take, a, take, a, can take a, a long time, but it's possible. Sounds pretty strong. However, the most recent study was published in August of this year, about a little bit of more than a month ago, in the magazine Science, did indeed not find, and that was a secular magazine, scientific magazine, did not find a genetic cause of same-sex attraction. They could not say more than that genetics may have a limited contribution to sexual orientation. But Wells needs to stress that it is learned behavior, otherwise the church would have no ground left to admonish people to break with homosexual sin, he says. And then you cannot really blame the homosexual for being angry with a God who gives him the orientation but who forbids him to live that way. So somebody born gay or does somebody become gay? Uh, the last word has not been said, but I don't think it's either. Or, let's say, it's a bit of both. And not necessarily the same for everyone. Think of this illustration. Simple illustration. Right? If, um, if you want to become a successful artist, a painter or a musician... You need the talents, you need what you're born with, you need with who you are. But you also need to develop your skills, you need to learn, you need to take courses, you need to, to take, take lessons. With talents but no education, or the other way around, with no talents at all but lots of education, you will always be a mediocre artist. I mean, you can claim that homosexuality is, homosexuality is just learned behavior, as Wells does. But what about the mother who says when her son comes out of the closet when he is 20 and the mother says, it doesn't surprise me. I knew it all along. He was already different from his brothers when he was only four. As a matter of fact, in the end, it doesn't really matter where it comes from. Whatever it is that brings it about in somebody's life, I believe that homosexuality is an unnatural result of our inborn sinfulness. We are broken people. We are all broken people. We are all affected by sin. 
And every part of us is affected by sin. Not everyone is affected in the same way. So the question is not so much where it comes from. The question is, what do you do with it? What's the place that it has in your life? Think of someone who is, who is hot-tempered. A guy with a short fuse. You cannot help that you have that. But it's not an excuse to explode in a fit of anger and become violent every time something happens that you don't like. Or you don't agree with it. You can submit yourself to anger management, probably a good thing. You can pray about it, because you know that self-control is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But even if that helps you to control yourself, it doesn't mean that your temper is gone. The homosexual will say, this is how I am. I have these feelings, I have these thoughts, I have this attraction, and it's not going away. So how do we respond to that? You should say, okay, I accept that. I accept that. But does it imply that now you almost must accept the idea that this is how God wants him to live and God wants him to act? Does that fit with your relationship with the Holy God? What does he expect from you in your life? Yes, we do believe that everything happens under the umbrella of God's sovereign power. And somehow... That includes even the brokenness of this sinful life. But you cannot say, okay, if this is how God wants me to be, he cannot forbid me to act on it. That is not a logical conclusion in a broken and sinful world. That, uh, that brings us to another area that gets lots of attention in the literature, especially where homosexuality meets Christianity. What does the Bible actually say about homosexuality? There are many good exegetical studies available on that. The five passages in the center of the discussion are, they come always back, so Leviticus 18, verse 22, Leviticus 20, verse 13, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 to 10, 1 Timothy 1, verse 9 to 11, and Romans 1, verse 21 to 32. Those are the famous five Bible passages that you can study. And, uh, and what I call the gay-friendly exegesis of these passages, we don't go into detail text by text, but what I call the gay-friendly exegesis of these passages will tell you that here the Bible addresses homosexual immorality and that, that came with pagan idol worship in the Canaanite temples in the Old Testament that's for Leviticus and, um, and, and, and the Greek and Roman temples in the New Testament that's from 1 Corinthians into 1 Timothy and Romans 1 and yes that, that's, that's wrong they say that's wrong but they claim that this immoral temple prostitution has nothing to do with, with the loving, monogamous, faithful, same-sex relationship as we know them today. Because that is something the Bible is not familiar with, they say. And that is something the Bible does not address. Remember one of the four um, that people that I was talking about in the beginning? And one of them really claimed that. What do we deal with that? 
The statement that the Bible is not familiar with what we know today is based more on wishful thinking than about what we know about the ancient cultures. And a connection with pagan temple worship might be true or not true. Fact is that the Bible itself does not make that connection. Honest and straightforward exegesis must lead to the result that Scripture does not give room for homosexual relations. Uh, there's not on paper here, but there's one book here that I would like to. This is from Kevin DeYoung. Uh, you may know the author. Uh, don't give it a comeback. Don't call it a comeback. And uh, here's a chapter in there about homosexuality. And he quotes a New Testament scholar um, who knows the Greek and knows the New Testament. And this New Testament scholar says, we should not fool ourselves and thinking we can interpret the Bible that it condones homosexual relationship. It doesn't. It doesn't. And anybody who says that it does, there's false exegesis. He's an exegesis himself. He said, that's why we have to say, at that point, we don't accept the Bible. Well, that's an honest, that's an honest, honest approach. Right? And, 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 so, so that is in, in, in important. Honest and straightforward exegesis must lead to the conclusion that Scripture does not give room for homosexual relations. It is even more important not to restrict ourselves to a few isolated passages like the five we have there. But it is good to put it all within the great framework of God's design for marriages. That has been revealed throughout the Bible. It's all about the relationship, including sexual relationship, between one man and one woman, as reflected in the creation story and in the rest of Scripture. We can never get around the fact that whenever the Bible speaks about sexuality, and, and that, is, that is often, there's a whole lot, there is never an indication anywhere that the Bible has something positive to say about homosexual relations. You can't find it. A helpful resource for this is the website of Dr. Robert A. J. Gagnon, www.robgagnon.net. Until two years ago, Gagnon was professor of New Testament in Pittsburgh. He's no longer with Pittsburgh Theological Seminary now, but he still maintains his website. And that is really on this whole topic of reading the Bible about homosexuality. There's a lot of good material there. Another controversial issue in the discussion is, can homosexuality be cured? You may have heard about that, I read about that. Now, cured, then, in the sense that through biblical counseling and prayer and repentance and forgiveness, the damage can be undone. The homosexual gathered of his homosexuality. Perhaps he can turn around and with the help of conversion or reparative therapy become a heterosexual. Some claim that that's the case. As we heard Edward Wells say, learned behavior can be unlearned. Well, when you, when, when you hear about it and you read about it, you orient yourself, um, you can say, yeah, it might be possible sometimes. There are testimonies about that. But we also hear about others who claim to be cured 
and then return to embrace the gay lifestyle. The success stories of those changes are few and far in between. And the claim that you can and does you must be cured has also driven Christian homosexuals to despair and suicide. Let's be cautious. The homosexual does not exist. We're talking about individuals. In the church, we're talking about brothers or sisters in the Lord. And each of them has his or her own character, personality, weaknesses, sins, shortcomings, history. And everyone is struggling with his or her limitations. And again, that's the painful result of our brokenness and sinfulness. Let me put it this way. Cure is not the option. Oh, well, option. it's not the goal. shouldn't be the goal. Christian conversion therapy that uses the Christian faith to fix homosexuality into heterosexuality is wrong. Healing is a better word. I like to use the word healing. And then healing in this sense that the man or the woman with the homosexual orientation, the homosexual attraction, must be confirmed in his or her relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ or restored in that relationship with God and find freedom and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. That's a powerful transformation. The solution to all sin is the atoning blood of Jesus that blood sets you free from the dominion of sin, including the sin of homosexual behavior. Repentance and victory over sin are the gifts from God. But at this side of eternity, we will still experience the brokenness of our sinful flesh. And homophobia is also sin. Turning around, it won't have anything to do with you. Is also sin. Can we expect such healing in Christ to result in change to the point that homosexual feelings will turn into heterosexual feelings? Don't I would say don't count on it. Might happen, don't count on it. Sons and daughters of the king can be full members of the body of Christ and still feel unwanted homosexual desire. They continue to struggle. With homosexual temptation. You know what? That's hard. That's incredibly hard. It's incredibly hard. However, the answer to being gay is not being heterosexual. The answer to being gay is being whole in Christ Jesus and by grace being dedicated to serving God in obedience as a living sacrifice according to God's will and desire to live for his glory. And I'll come to the second part of the presentation. And we will uh, we'll confront, con confront ourselves with the questions, what do we do? Not only as office bearers, but as church community. When we find this often, this often lonely and confused, and sometimes upset and angry, young brother or sister quite often in the church, when we find this person among our friends,
and among our family members. They are confused. They want to live as God's children. They want to follow Jesus Christ. At the same time, they get these aggressive, loud, in-your-face messages from the LGBTQ community in our over-sexualized society. And you get it everywhere. And they tell you that your sexuality determines who you are, that's your identity, and that's how you should live. And we all know that more and more this LGBTQ agenda becomes enshrined in the legislation in our country. How can we be more proactive so that this brother or sister dares to come to us and share with us what he or she is feeling without the fear of being condemned of hand and rejected of hand? How can we make sure that the homosexual brother or sister can trust that the church of Jesus Christ is a safe place for him or her? Where she or he receives the encouragement to stay the path that God wants him to go. A few observations. Homosexuals in the church often experience that the pastor, the elders, and the members of the church do not really know what to say. Somebody comes out, or if you hear about it, you talk, and don't know how to, to respond. Or they jump to conclusions, and they don't take time to listen. They often feel that there is not much understanding for what they are struggling with, and it makes it hard to talk about it. That's the first one. The second comment. In Genesis 2 verse 18, God says it is not good for the man to be alone. The person with the homosexual attraction struggles with it. How can the same God tell him elsewhere in the Bible that he must be alone for the rest of his life? He will never experience the same kind of loving intimacy that his heterosexual friends will be able to enjoy. A third observation. If he comes out of the closet and says, I'm a Christian, and I have homosexual feelings, he may meet fear, ridicule, unbelief. How can you be a Christian and have the same sex attraction at the same time? doesn't make sense. Sometimes family and friends will reach out and love and accept him for who he is, but then they add right away, but you're not allowed to do it. As if the homosexual in the church does not know that. This is exactly what brings the pain. What brings the struggle, the confusion. Last comment here. The result is a feeling of being rejected. And it can easily lead to increasing loneliness. Isolation. When that happens, the temptation becomes strong to find solace outside of the church. Where do they go? There is the homosexual subculture in the world. There, he feels acknowledged, understood, accepted, and supported. That's the place where he belongs. Well, but if he says that he does want to serve God and stay away from homosexual relations, the homosexual subculture also throws him out. 
It's a dark and dangerous place to be. They will not accept him either if he says that as a Christian he wants to obey God's word. How can we help? I think of two areas. First, how can we reach out to the homosexual in our midst? How can we help him or her to give his homosexual orientation the proper place in his relationship with God? How can we help him to see and use his gifts and abilities for serving God and serving his neighbor within the biblical boundaries? Another area is how can we provide together as church community a safe environment so that the homosexual in our midst can find his place in the congregation and will experience the support that he needs in order to be obedient to the word of God. I have a, a few more or less random uh, considerations and thoughts. And uh, how many do I have? Uh, ten or... Yeah, 12 or so, 13, anyway. Um, okay. One, treat your homosexual brother and sister as what we all are. That's our starting point. Created in God's image with damaged, corrupted, sinful human nature as we all have. But also, God's loved children Saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's for them and for you and for me and for all of us the same necessary. We all live by the love of God and the mercy of Christ. That's the framework. Jesus died for them. Jesus died for you and me. He brought them with his, he bought them with his precious blood. And the Holy Spirit renews them. This is one of the most powerful, the most transformative things you can say to them. Transformative in the sense of Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Second. Let your homosexual brother or sister and all your church members, also those who are single and are heterosexual, yeah, let them feel that there is no place on earth where a sinful human being be, can be safer than within the church of Jesus Christ. Not first of all because the people. That's what you look for, you may be disappointed. We are often disappointed in people in the church true for all of us. But in the church are the powers of God's word and God's Holy Spirit at work. Here the protective care of Jesus Christ our master is present and he loves you. And actually as church members we should all reflect that of course. Three. Point each other at Paul's words in Romans 6 verse 11 and 12. Count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Never forget what you are in Jesus Christ. Never forget who runs your life. And as the struggle with same-sex attraction remains, remember also 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8 and 9. Whatever it was was Paul tormented by, and you know the passage, and we don't exactly know what it was what caused Paul so, to, to struggle so much. But he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Yeah. 
Encourage your homosexual brother or sister. Don't be obsessed with what you have to fight against. It's hard. But try not to make, in your mind, your sexual identity, your same-sex attraction, the cause of all your problems. Remind each other of the good things and the unique gifts God gives to his children, all his children. Focus on the positive goals God sets before us. Show them that this is the way to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit will enable us, even if we continue to struggle and sometimes remain single for the rest of our lives. Five. Help your homosexual brother or sister not to give up on the community of the church. Even if people in the church don't always get it. Like everyone else, if you're homosexual, like everyone else, you will need some people to trust in and confide in. But no one in the church is the close, intimate friend of everybody else in the church. It doesn't work that way. And so there is no requirement to broadcast loudly and everywhere that you're gay. The homosexual himself or herself must come to the place in his life that he doesn't necessarily need to talk about it all the time. Six, that is possible when you realize that there's more to life than your sexual orientation. And that, that goes counter to the message of our society, right? Let me, let's be realistic about it. That goes totally counter to, in, to, to, in, against that. So learn to describe your identity as a sinner who has been forgiven and made a life in Christ. What, is, what does that mean? It means that the Christian homosexual must say no to homosexual relations. Just as the heterosexual must say no to other sinful attractions, to other sinful sexual attractions. But it will teach all of us more and more how deep the love of Christ is. Christ humbled himself for sinners. So when in this way self-identification is based on, on, on who he is in Jesus Christ, the homosexual may also be better prepared to handle offensive and hurtful comments or criticism of his brothers and sisters. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are talking about. Having said that, there is in the Church of Christ never an excuse for offensive or hurtful comments. Let our churches grow into places where our gay brother or sister want to serve the Lord, to stay away from homosexual um, activities, may feel comfortable talking also about this aspect of their lives. Help your homosexual brother or sister to accept the reality of the same-sex attraction, the homosexual orientation in his or her life. Walk alongside him or her as they struggle to break the link between seeing an attractive person and sexual desire. It's not identical. Help them to steer away from translating the feeling of attraction into a sexual or a romantic desire. And try to understand the depth of the struggle that comes with that. 
share with him that for any Christian believer, for yourself included, sanctification is an ongoing process. And that makes struggling and suffering essential aspects of the Christian life. It reminds us all to depend on Jesus Christ all the time. Next, prepare your homosexual brother or sister that trials and temptations will arise in this life. They will. Remember what it says in James 1, verse 2 to 4. In Jesus Christ, let me read those verses. James 1, verse 2 to 4. About trials and temptations. It's a fairly uh, well-known passage, but it's good to put it in this context. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In Jesus Christ, you can be free from the grip that homosexuality had over your life. Again, that does not mean that you will be without temptation. But trials and temptations are not sins. I mentioned that, and I want to repeat that. They come to test the perseverance of your faith. Whether or not those temptations will lead to sin depends on your response to temptations. But always remember this. If we try to face trials and temptations without relying on the grace of God, we will fail. Next, explain to your um, homosexual brother or sister that it is not our idea that he or she should go alone in life without a marriage partner. The church did not make that up. We actually, we have no right to put that burden on anyone. Only God can do that. A God who has said it is not good for the man to be alone, only he has the right to ask you to go your life alone. And he does. Because he is the only one who can make sure that you will never be alone. In his grace, he will give you the most wonderful and intimate relationship in which you can share everything in your life. That is your relationship with the Lord Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. In his arms he'll take and shield you. Yes, that comes without a physical relationship. That's true. That comes without sexual intimacy. And that, again, it can be difficult. But it's worth the price. That's the good news for all of us, including our homosexual brothers and sisters. Hear this, this good news. When by God's grace you don't let your same-sex feelings, attraction, or orientation, let that rule you, when you will not let it turn into lustful desires and acts, you think you may feel empty in your life, unfulfilled. That's what the world will tell you. That's the message for today's society. But see what you get in turn from Jesus. He makes you right before God. He gives peace, wholeness, gladness, and hope. Trust that Jesus will complete 
every aspect of who you are in a way that your preferred homosexual relationship would never be able to do. It is true that homosexual desires and homosexual behavior are a distortion of good desires and godly behavior to the glory of God. The Bible is very clear about that. They keep you from living the life that God wants you to live. But when we say that, we should not forget that people who pursue homosexual desires and relationship, they are in this way also pursuing a desire that we all have. Remember that. That's the desire for love. The desire for affection. Wanting to be loved and wanting to show and receive affection is not sinful. It's good. God created us with these desires and put it in our hearts. To share, therefore, with the homosexuals that you meet in your midst, who, who long for love, share the message of the greatest and the best love there is, that is God's love in Jesus Christ. What they are looking for can be found in God. It can be found in God and Jesus Christ on a much deeper and more wonderful level than they could ever find in any human relationship. And that's true for all of us. Last one. If your homosexual brother or sister follows desires and live a life that is not in line with God's design for relationship, as we find it in the scriptures, if they, they follow up on that, and they, they fall into that trap, well, that desire, Urge them, don't drop them in your life, but urge them to keep soaking themselves in the word of God. Pray with them and pray for them and ask the Holy Spirit to renew his heart, to renew his mind. Tell them your struggle with same-sex attraction may never go away, but don't doubt the love of your Father in heaven. Don't think you have fallen out of God's hand. He is aware of your needs and he genuinely cares. He is your great comforter. When he says to you, it is not good for the man to be alone, he wants you to turn to Jesus Christ. We, um, we'll have to wrap this up um, in, in this day and age. The central question uh, remains, uh, what is the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ? What does that offer the homosexual who believes that in the Bible God speaks about homosexuality? And relationships in such a way that there is no room for a same-sex relationship. To put it differently, what does it mean for this homosexual brother and sister to walk in a close relationship with the Lord who fulfills for him what God said in Genesis 2, that it is not good for the man to be alone? Here's the conclusion. Romans 3, 23. For the gospel... Everyone is the same. Righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe, there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The homosexual who turns away from homosexual desires and behavior to follow Jesus Christ, that homosexual embarks on a difficult journey. But when God declares him righteous, and when God adopts her as his child, 
when God opens his eyes for his glory and so transforms the person more and more into the likeness of Christ, how can we as God's people ignore him or avoid him? On the contrary, we can only thank the Lord for the celibate gay Christian who does not want to live in a homosexual relationship, wants to stay celibate. We can only thank the Lord for this Christian who by the grace of God pays the price for obeying his heavenly father. And to our gay and lesbian fellow believer, I want to say this. We acknowledge that your struggle is real. And that it is hard. But we love you. We embrace you as our brother and sister in Jesus. The God who said, it is not good for a man to be alone. He added in Genesis 2, I will make him a helper suitable for him. For Adam, that was Eve. The man found his wife. But always remember, with Jesus as your helper, you have much more in common with fellow believers who are heterosexual than you would have in common with others who have the same sexual orientation but who are not Christian believers, who are not your brothers and sisters in Jesus. Um, I have one more slide I think and there is a list of literature um, um, let me show you a few things um, some of you may, may be familiar with so many things um, first of all the, uh, the website of Rob Gagnon I mentioned that already uh, then there is um, I printed it out, I don't know if I have to copy, but that's okay. You can find it at the website of Matt Moore, A Biblical Perspective on Homosexuality. That is on um, www.moremat.com. That's a good article. It's a, actually a fairly long essay. It's, it's uh, helpful. Uh, he, is, uh, he, is, he is homosexual, he is gay, but he indeed wants to serve the Lord and not be uh, living in a relationship. Uh, Edward Welch. In Blame It on the, on the, on the Brain, there is this book, uh, chapter 9, and I refer to him in my, my speech. Uh, he has some good things to say, although I think that his approach is uh, too much one-sided to focus on, on change. And he says the same thing in this brochure, a homosexual speaking the truth in love. Um, Kevin DeYoung wrote this article in uh, Don't Call the Comeback. That's, uh, that's helpful. Oh, what's happening here? Okay, this is the title of the next one I wrote down. That's Kevin de Jong's book, um, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? If you're familiar with Kevin de Jong, he's a very good author in the sense that he has, uh, has a lot of good things to uh, teach, but he's very, very, very understandable. He, he, he writes in a way that everybody can really follow him as very, uh, very accessible material. Uh, it's a little bit less accessible, but actually helpful. Kevin DeYoung is not homosexual himself. Washed and waiting. That is Wesley Hill. Um, uh, he speaks about his own journey as, uh, as homosexual, um, being convinced that he cannot live in a homosexual relationship and what it means in his life. 
uh, I think Dr. De Visser a while ago wrote a uh, review of this book in Clarion, but don't ask me exactly the number of Clarion about that. It has been a while. Um, some of you may be familiar with Rosaria Butterfield, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She has some more books, some really good stuff also in the other book. Um, but this is, this is her journey. As a lesbian, uh, English professor, secular, atheist, lesbian, English professor at university, and uh, became a Christian. And, and she will, it's a, it's a bit different than, than Wesley Hill, she will claim that you have to be changed, orientation has to be, be uh, changed. And that's her own journey. Uh, she's married, and uh, she's in the RPCNA, I think, Reformed Presbyterian Church. Um, but, it's a, but it's a fascinating book to read about her journey. Um, this book is actually, I did not, yeah, it's on, it's on there, uh, added, because I, was, I, I just bought it, and I, um, I, I was reading it um, on the plane when I was flying here to, uh, <laughs> to Winnipeg, um, about finishing the last chapters. Uh, costly obedience. It's a bit of a, a number of psychologists at university somewhere in the U.S., Christian Union University, what we can learn from the celibate gay Christian community. There's a lot of statistics in there that psychologists do. They, they, they interview people and they make lists of this answer, that answer, that answer. So the first chapters are a little bit, I would say boring, but it depends what you like. Um, but the last few chapters are very pastoral. And, and you may not necessarily agree with everything they say, but you have a really good take on, on the role of the church for the gay celibate, of the celibate gay Christians. And, and, and one thing, I didn't really mention that uh, here, and I didn't include it, include it anymore, I found it in one of the last chapters, um, that they say, uh, these two authors also say, it is important that the church... Our Christian churches, our Reformed Presbyterian background churches, develop a better um, um, uh, view and, and, and whatever you want, want, want to call it, for single members in the congregation, um, regardless of the sexual orientation. Because we have single members in, in the church, uh, single men and women, who... Um, who uh, 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 some of them would love to have a partner and are still searching for that. But you can also get single people that find a place in life without having a partner and are quite okay with that. They use the talents and gifts in the congregation, in the church. And the church should welcome that, should honor and give place to single people. If you have kind of a policy, or a policy a kind, of a, kind of a view for single people in general, it may make it easier for those who have same-sex attraction to fit in that mold. I found it an interesting, uh, interesting um, elements if, uh, of that uh, approach. So that is an interesting book too. Thank you very much. I have been talking for about an hour, so that's actually way too long. But what can you do? <laughs>